0: Gumbo listeners, we are back with episode number 128. I'm your host, Demetrius Malbro. And today I have Kashish Gupta, co-founder of HiTouch. And HighTouch provides a reverse ETL platform, which syncs data from a data warehouse to various SaaS tools. And Kashish also previously spent time in the VC world ML, and working to build a better public education system. In this episode, we discuss reverse ETL, some reasons for moving data out of a data warehouse, and the critical role that APIs play in the data analytics landscape. Let's get right into this episode. Welcome to Data Protection Gumbo, Kashish. How are you? I'm great.
1: Great to be here, Dimitris.
0: Awesome. I am excited to have this conversation with you. And why don't we start off a little bit. uh, Why don't you tell us a little bit about Hightouch?
1: Sure. Yeah, Hightouch is a business uh, we started in 2020 that really pioneered the concept of reverse ETL. And what reverse ETL is, is the concept of getting data out of a data warehouse, Um, where like regular ETL would be getting data into a data warehouse. And our customers use us really to get data in from their data warehouse into any of the 80 SaaS tools that we integrate with.
0: Okay, so reverse ETL is basically flipping the ETL process on its head and being able to migrate the data, I guess, in a different direction?
1: Exactly. And like the whole point is that we all have this data now in our data warehouse. We have a lot of it. And we're spending a lot of time organizing it for analytics, but it never really gets out of the data warehouse. It usually stay, gets stuck in the warehouse or in BI reports but it's not really used for operational purposes, such as marketing or sales.
0: Okay. Okay. And so this is, this is more of a way of, I guess, maybe being able to tap into that data. You mentioned analytics. Mm -hmm. So how exactly does that reverse ETL process enable maybe your marketing and your sales team to maybe provide better customer experiences?
1: When your SaaS tool has a lot of customer information, let's say it's things like, is this customer likely to buy? What type of product do they usually buy, how many how many times they logged in, that kind of data, then you're able to run more specific marketing campaigns based on that specific information that you have on a customer. And without that specific information, you'd be doing much more broad-based marketing, things like demographics or the kind of like third-party information that Facebook and Google has on your customer. But with first-party information that you have on your customer, you can really segment up those customers into more granular audiences. So that's the kind of data. Um, that we power getting into those marketing tools. And the types of campaigns you can run are really wide varying. So we have lifecycle marketers powering email campaigns via high touch. We have performance marketers powering um, advertising campaigns. And this is both for B2B companies and for B2C companies. So a B2C company might be thinking of it as, let me engage my top 10% of users because I want them to buy a second time. Whereas a B2B company might be thinking of it as, all right, well, I know these 10 users from a certain company have already made an account on my product. I want the next 90 users to make an account on my product. So let me go market to those 90 users on LinkedIn. But really it's anywhere where you have data about the user in your database. Okay. And you could use that data to then power some campaign.
0: Okay. And, and maybe, maybe walk us back through a one-on-one version of a data warehouse and I guess, maybe the importance of having a data warehouse because you know most of the listeners today, they are familiar with data backup and recovery and security and securing all of that data. Let, let me hear from you. What's your, what's your definition of, of a data warehouse and what's the importance of, of a data warehouse?
1: Yeah, that's a really good question. So what we consider a data warehouse is um, a vendor like Snowflake or BigQuery or Redshift. And what we would call these are like cloud data warehouses. Um, the original data warehouses were something that people would spin up for themselves and host locally. But now that we have um, cloud vendors, they're actually a lot easier to use. And the reason a data warehouse is extremely important for a company to have is because usually it's the place where all of the data is found. So your production database has like just your production data that needs to be served very quickly. Your SaaS tools each have like their view of their customer data. But there's no place that centralizes all of the data and merges it together in one single data store. Except for the data warehouse, and the reason the data warehouse is the, a great place to do this mm-hmm. is because it's the like, the cheapest and still like reliably fast place to store data. So usually, what you'll see companies do is they'll replicate each of their systems into the data warehouse. So you'll have a carbon copy of your production database. You'll have a carbon copy of your Salesforce and any other CRM you have, um, of your transactions table, your accounting system, your marketing system, everything all replicated into one place. And each of those will show up as databases within the data warehouse. And the beautiful thing is that you can actually run like cross-DB joins, basically, um, across all of those different databases. Mm-hmm. Because they're replicated into one, so it's not even cross-database. It's actually just all in one database. And so like when you ask someone at a, at a company, like where can you go to access all of your data? The only real place they'll be able to access their data is that data warehouse. Um, and usually the UI at which, through which they're accessing it is some sort of BI tool. So they'll be using something like Looker or Mode or Tableau and saying that, yeah, I, I go to Looker to access that data. Mm-hmm. But really, under the hood, Looker or Tableau or Mode are sitting on top of the data warehouse as the underlying data store.
0: Who Who is the, the primary persona, someone who would be maybe performing these reverse ETL functions or you know, really caring about a data warehouse, et cetera. I know it's not the CIO because th- they are more focused on some of the higher level strategy around making sure things are secure, et cetera. Mm-hmm. It, who exactly are we talking about that would, would actually utilize a product like this?
1: The users of Touch are usually data engineers. okay. And the reason it's usually data engineer is because they're the ones that are tasked with things like, hey, we have this user's table and we need to get that user's table into Salesforce. So when that task gets their plate, and they now need to write a script in Python in order to transfer that data between the user's database and the Salesforce instance, um, that's where they usually find out about highTouch and then outsource that task to our product. Our product is really just like a simple way to create those data flows, but um, usually not, we're actually seeing um, a widening of that user base from data engineers to analytics engineers, as well as analysts too because the only real prerequisite for being able to use the Hitech product is to be able to write SQL. And you, the number of people in a company that are able to write SQL is growing pretty rapidly. Um, the product is pretty simple. Like what you do is you give us a SQL query, and then you map the columns of that SQL query to the columns in your SAS tool. And that's pretty much all you need to do. Then Hitech will create a data sync for you that will send live data over that SAS tool. So if you can kind of think about like anyone in the company that would be responsible for creating those data syncs for the SaaS tools, Um, those would be the end user Um, and they don't even have to be like the person that writes code in their company they could be the person that writes sql queries as well like we're seeing um, marketing analysts even start to use the product because they're usually the ones that are tasked with hey we have users that have logged in more than five times we'd love to send them a campaign because they're likely to buy Um, so in order to set up that campaign um, that marketing analyst will pull up um, the subset of users that have logged in more than five times and then they'll use high touch to sync that audience over to multiple tools at a time. So they'll sync that audience to TikTok, Snapchat, Google Ads, Facebook ads, and an email marketing tool all at once.
0: Okay. That sounds pretty cool. And so so you you've already mentioned some of some of the use cases, but Um, I I understand I was poking around on your site that there were three primary use cases for reverse ETL and operational analytics is one. I think you mentioned that you touched on data automation a little bit and um, I'm looking at data infrastructure as well. Would you like to expand on that?
1: I think there's a good way to frame like the common use cases of Vitech, which would be like, what business team does this serve? So usually someone for a B2B business, sales is the revenue generating team or customer success. And so usually what people will do is they'll augment their B2B customer data using high touch. And so that'll be in something like a sales CRM or a customer success CRM, like Insight. Um, and what that'll involve is something like here's the resources that customers have set up, here's how many APIs they've consumed, um, and here's the like the number of like times they've, for example, like engaged with our application or number of users they have in their workspace. Um, that's usually how uh, a sales or success team in a B2B world would use the product. And then in the B2C world, we have like two different use cases. We have the marketing use case, as well as, like, like I'll call it like the lifecycle marketing use case, as well as the performance marketing use case. And so it alternates between, um, are we trying to engage existing users and get them to do actions more and more? So for example, let's say I have an iOS app, and it's a mobile game. Um, I want to engage users that have played the game once or twice and get them to play every day. Um, that's the kind of campaign that we would run. Whereas like, for performance marketers, it would be more like we have these people that have engaged with our website and they have not converted yet. So they visited my checkout page, but they've never purchased something from me. Um, and so I want to re-engage that person because they've abandoned cart to purchase at some point in their life cycle. So Imperfect Foods is one of our customers. And they, sa- they have a grocery box of like foods that are like imperfect looking but perfect quality. And they want to engage customers that have been on the website to, re- to um, eventually check out. And so they run Facebook ads and
0: Google ads through our product. OK, and so th- this is dealing with a lot of data. So there's multiple copies of data. And data warehousing by itself is just uh, a lot of data. You're talking you know, maybe terabytes and petabytes of mm-hmm. data that you're dealing with. Um, what is, is, is there a challenge with just trying to protect this data and make sure that the data is secure? Are there any challenges around uh, the, the security factor of, you know, manipulating the data or trying to pull analytics from it?
1: Uh, yeah, so there were. Um, when we first built the app, we were actually kind of like, we didn't feel comfortable shipping the app without thinking about how to make data not reside in our database. So, like, we had this option, right? We, w- we had the option of um, replicating data from the customer's data warehouse into our own database and then into the SaaS tool. And when making that decision, we didn't feel comfortable actually doing that because we didn't want the liability of having that customer's data reside in our database. Um, so, it was actually purely like a measure to make sure that we didn't have to take on ext- extraneous liability. Um, and so from day one, we actually built the system in a way that the data never resides in our database at all. Um, not even the logs or any sort of like temporary data store. And instead, what we did is we allow customers to provide their own S3 bucket or Google Cloud bucket um, as the staging environment for their data syncs. So what will happen is our system will pull data from their data warehouse. Um, it'll temporarily store it in the customer's own cloud storage bucket like AWS S3. And then it'll sync that temporarily stored data into their SaaS tool. So there's not like any moment where the data is at rest in our systems. And as a result, we don't have to worry about things like, are we residing data in the right country? Yeah, compliance. Uh, Is it accessible? Yeah, exactly. Is it human readable? We actually get to avoid a lot of those risks. And those risks are mutual for both us and for our customers. So it's kind of a win-win. Um, And when we first did that, we did it because we thought it was the right thing to do, and we thought it was the best way to avoid liability on on, um, data privacy. But ultimately, it actually ended up turning out to be a really strong value prop for our customers. Um, A lot of our customers say that other SaaS tools don't have that security, and therefore they can not use those SaaS tools. So, for example, a lot of CDPs um, don't have the ability to reside data in the customer's VPC, which means that those CDPs can't be HIPAA compliant or... um, Compliant with fintech standards, whereas for us, like we don't really have to worry about like are we meeting those standards. Like outside of the fact that we don't store data, because if you are not storing data, you are a conduit. So we're able to say that we're HIPAA compliant through the conduit exception um, on day one, and as a result, like our first big customer actually was a healthcare company called Thirty Madison that owns Keeps and Evens, and then our like second big customer was the large fintech brand Plaid that does a lot of payment processing. So like usually when you start a company, um, you're not able to serve like healthcare and fintech customers on day one. That's usually something that happens like year two or three after you're SOC 2 compliant and you go through a lot of other security measures. But just by nature of our architecture, that actually happened for us on day one. And we were working with those customers even before we're SOC 2 compliant, which now we are SOC 2 compliant and it actually makes the process a lot easier because they get a verifiable stamp. But... Even before we were stocked to compliant, the customers felt like really comfortable with our security
0: story. Okay, that's pretty awesome. Now, what would what would you say to a someone that's manually uh, syncing data to to some of these tools today, uh, like maybe you know the CRM platform like Salesforce mm-hmm. or Snowflake, or you know any of these others? I know there's some challenges out there. If they're manually doing it, they have to do some scripting and yeah, uh, some some other pretty. Uh, arduous task in order to get this get this done uh wh- what's your advice there? do you have any any stories for us um on how challenging it is, how hard it is horror stories or anything
1: yeah i do um I wish Pedro was here he's their head of data and he used to write these scripts all the time at his past companies um so he would tell me about the horror stories because I actually underestimated how hard it was. I thought it was something like where all right, I pull up aWS I host my python script. Um, it takes me about like something like three or four days to write it. And then boom, I'm getting data into my Salesforce or into whatever tool I have. Um, talk to him. It turned out that it actually takes something more like a month to write one of these scripts that gets data into Salesforce. Um, and it depends on the use case, right? Like Salesforce is not just Salesforce. Salesforce is contacts, accounts, opportunities. It could be like 10 other objects and the scheme for like how you want to sync that data might be different. It might be insert only. It might be update only. It might be insert and update. Um, There's a lot of different logic that you have to write depending on your use case. And that use case could change over time as well. So he said, well, I'm actually never done writing that integration because I write it once. That takes me a few weeks. I test it rigorously. And then the engineers or the salespeople or whoever it is that's requesting that integration will want some changes. So they'll want new columns to be added to that integration or they'll want um, new tables or new objects to be added to that integration. And so... The, the, the bigger struggle was really maintaining that script over time, um, especially as the destination APIs, like the Salesforce APIs, changed over time. And then as those scripts broke, you wouldn't have visibility into why they're breaking or when they're breaking. So it might be weeks before the salesperson realizes that their data is out of sync for the past week, um, and then they notify their data team, and then a month later, something gets fixed. Right, So you'd have like weeks and weeks of downtime in between because there wasn't a really good alerting system um, to let you know that there was something broken in between. So those were the kinds of problems. It was really like updating these to to reflect like new columns and new data points, and then um, getting alerts when things would go wrong. Um, So that kind of is the reason why it was such an arduous process. Uh, And then that's just for one integration. So that's just if you want to get data into Salesforce, that's how much work it takes. But now let's say you want to get that same data into many different systems, like um, a marketing CRM, like Iterable or Braze, and then let's say um, a Gainsight or a Tatango for, for customer success. Now you have to write the whole system again for those different integrations, um, and you can't reuse what you already have. So that's like really where it gets more, more complicated.
0: Yeah, so obviously APIs is, um, plays a very important role mm-hmm. in in this process. And um, how important, I guess, is, is APIs for, um, mm-hmm. I guess, especially for for you guys, and also for for um, some of the listeners that are out there. Uh, I, I guess I want to understand what's what's your take on on APIs. You love it, or it you hate it, or you don't care about it, or you know what what what's your what's your take on on APIs and trying to integrate with with different yeah. products and tools and in the APIs. Is that tough or what?
1: Uh, well, we like to think that this is like the burden that we take on, so that our customers don't have to. Um, and so what we'll do is all of our syncs um, run against the right APIs of those SAS tools. So we have to maintain um, proper like, documentation of those APIs, um, make sure that as they're updated, that we update our, um, like our infrastructure as well to support those new APIs. Mm-hmm. Um, but like, without those APIs, we wouldn't be able to write data to any of those SAS tools. So they're extremely right. necessary. Um, they're usually pretty robust. Like some of them are better than others. others, of course. Um, but with the good ones, we have a great time um, building against them. And with the bad ones, we have a terrible time. But <laughs> I won't tell you, I won't comment on which ones are bad or which ones yeah, are bad. Yeah,
0: I won't do you like that.
1: <laughs> <laughs> but um, it's, um, it's 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 great to like have kind of like an open standard for how to get data into these tools, right? So like, even without talking to these SaaS vendors that we get data into, um, I can write against their API. I can ship OAuth and I can um, build the integration end-to-end without any sort of permission or like opening up from their side. So that actually does help a lot from a growth perspective because we grew from zero to 80 integrations in one year. And the only reason we were able to do that is because um, we didn't have any sort of red tape in that process. We were just able to get started by ourselves for, I would call it like for 70 out of 80 of them, we were able to get started ourselves. And then the other 10 or so, we needed to get access um, from those vendors. Um, But like, it's 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 like good to be able to say that our customers then don't have to deal with those APIs, because that's like one of the tedious things about writing these integrations. You have to go learn this new API and then write against it, and they each have their own quirks. So some of them might return different errors than others, and so you might not know why something is going wrong until you talk to someone from that vendor. So like learning those quirks and then us learning that quirk for like our hundreds of customers is just a much more efficient way to build things then each of those 100 customers going and learning that about that API.
0: Got it. And can, can you share any of the the architecture on the back end, like how you guys built this? And I'm sure it's probably living in AWS. Yeah. Um, and you're using some microservices or Kubernetes or Docker mm-hmm. or whatever the case may be.
1: Yeah, so we use um, AWS ECS, which is just like Docker. Um, and what we do is we it's all running on Node.js, but we've separated out our app. With, has like the visual UI from the actual worker that pulls the data and pushes the data. So th- therefore, like you can basically have like one really small node running the app, and that's the UI that our users use to map the columns between SQL queries and SAS tools. That's the UI they use to set up their SAS tool and their d- and their data source. Um, and it actually requires like almost no resources because it's really just a CRUD application, um, and there's no real intense data flow going through that one. And then we have what we call our worker, and our worker actually has like millions or billions of rows of data that is flowing through it. And so those are horizontally scalable. Um, and so at any given time, we have up to 50 workers that will become on or off, um, depending on how many data syncs are running at that given hour. Um, and that way, like let's say like one of our customers starts a sync with 100 million rows, and then another customer starts a sync with a 10 million rows. Um, we don't have to wait for that 100 million rows to sync before the next 10 million rows can sync for the second customer. Um, each customer can get their own worker and scale horizontally that way to um, be able to run all of their things in parallel. Um, and then the other added benefit is that there's no sort of like cross-domain data whatsoever. So like one worker is working for one customer at a time. It's not working for multiple customers at a time. So there's no chance that anyone's data gets like crossed with each other. So it's just like a, it's, I think it's a really smart architecture that um, my co-founder Josh thought of. And it really allows us to think about things as, like, we're not really worried about scaling in terms of number of rows of data anymore, because we can always accommodate for more rows of data by sharding those workers.
0: Got it. And what are your views on CI, CD, and and DevOps? You mentioned it a little earlier about Mm -hmm. DevOps. There's DevOps, and there's DevSecOps, and uh, and its impact on on the cloud-native world. So... You know, that's companies running workloads, you know, natively in the cloud. You, do you have any views on on the CI-CD pipeline and how you have conversations with customers around maybe the automation factor of it?
1: Um, so not too much. Um, we, of course, use CI internally to test deployments before they deploy. So, for example, like, it's kind of crazy how much mission-critical uh, data we have, like, could affect, right? So, like, um, before we make the next deployment for iTouch, we want to make sure that the current things that are running um, don't get stopped in between and have to be restarted. And then we want to make sure that um, if the deployment is deployed, then, like, is the system going to run the same way that it was running before for the existing uh, data flows? So, like, if I just synced um, all my 100 million users over to Facebook ads, um, am I going to, is iTouch going to deploy something, and the next time it's going to sync those 100 million users in a different way and they're going to cause duplicates, right? So we kind of have to test each of those things um, in a sandbox before we deploy um, and see what the, the outcome would be, match it to the old outcome, and then deploy so that it is live. Um, and so we have that kind of like staging environment and like CI pipeline to make sure that that happens. Um, but we haven't really had any requests from customers to be able to run their own CI on our pipelines. Um, and there is this like new concept called data observability, that is kind of like what you're describing. So it's kind of like the CI for the data world, where you would basically put these monitors on your data pipelines, and those monitors would watch kind of autonomously for anomalies in your data pipeline. Um, and then they would flag and stop that pipeline if it has like some sort of like malformed data or like some sort of like anomaly that's not usually there. So that's like a pretty cool space. Um, there's a couple vendors in that space, like um, Monte Carlo and BigEye. Um, and they, they their whole entire like thing is to monitor your data pipelines. And then it could pause those pipelines if there's something wrong. So that would be, I think, something cool for the listeners to, listen, to look into. Do,
0: do you have any conversations with customers around having so much data that it's it's causing an issue? Uh, just trying to wrangle that data and the, the volume and velocity and variety of that data is just growing and growing and growing. Do you have any conversations like that?
1: Yeah, all the time. I mean, like literally, like one of the most common things is I have all this data. Now what do I do with it? Yeah. Um, and it's hard because not only do you have so much data, it's in all these different like schemas and you don't even always know where to find it. Like usually what I hear is, I don't even know which revenue table is the revenue table. Like the kind of things customers mention to us is, oh, I have these like 20 different users tables or I have these like seven different revenue tables, um, which one is the ground truth or which one is the ground truth truth for my team. Um, and if I found the ground truth, like I don't even know how it was calculated. So I might have these seven revenue tables um, what is the query that calculated each of these revenue tables, and why. Um, so that's the kind of organization that is like really missing from the data world, and that is extremely necessary before people can use data for their operations, which is kind of what we want. Um, and the best thing I've seen in order to create this organization and to create these kind of standards is this tool called dbt. So dbt is really how people are organizing their data models and creating a central place to look at definitions and like what are the SQL queries that are creating those models. Um, so in DBT, you can actually see like, all right, here's my data model that is creating the revenue table. It's coming from this other data model that is coming from this other data model, and that is predicated on this, this these three raw tables. So I can see which tables are like kind of like flowing into each of like, the consumable tables that are for my end users, and I can see how changes upstream reflect the downstream tables. So, like, that kind of, like, um, what is it called? Like, lineage graph is really useful because you know, like, what data comes from where. And then the end result, which is that I have clean data models and they're labeled and they have, like, metadata associated with them that tells me what they're for, um, is really great because me as the end user can know, all right, well, if the DBT model... Uh, if there's a dbt model for this, then it's probably the cleanest and like most like final version of that data. So I'll just use that version rather than any of these intermediate tables.
0: And is, is dbt, is that an open source product? It is, yeah. Okay.
1: Um, anyone can run it. Um, they have this thing called dbt cloud now too. So if you don't want to run it yourself, you can just uh, use it for free online as well.
0: What does that stand uh, for?
1: Um, it stands for data build tool. Okay. But people don't really call it data build tool at all. They just call it dbt.
0: Yeah, it's the first time I've ever heard of it, but it's not quite my world. Um but yeah. Everything is just kind of converging now anyway because digital transformation, right, is the the uh, the, the bucket that that everything gets um kind of thrown in these days. Yeah. And so data um, management and data analytics, it's it's all just kind of becoming one big uh world that we're all playing in. Um yeah. And maybe maybe one or two more questions before we we start to wrap up as well. If, if there was a, a CIO who I guess maybe was having these conversations internally with with their teams, their engineering teams and database teams and DevOps and all of mm-hmm. the teams that you know work with large amounts of data and they're trying to make sense of it, what would the conversation look like? or what, what would you say to that CIO if they're kind of on the fence with allowing their team, To to maybe have an automated way to pull this data and pull this information, and to maybe do a a reverse ETL.
1: Yeah, so it really depends on what stage of their data journey they're in. Um, Usually, like the story is that um, I haven't even got like I haven't even ETL'd my data into my data warehouse, and I need to justify a buying this data warehouse for the first time, which is a very expensive thing usually if you have a lot of data. I have to justify um, spending time ETLing data into that data warehouse and then modeling that data using something like DBT. So those are like the first three steps. Um, And that is really where like that CIO will be spending a lot of their decision making power um, and their budget. In fact, um, in order to buy those tools that are all prerequisites. Um, Once they've done that process, buying high touch in order to activate your data and like make use of it in operations is is pretty obvious. And it doesn't really take that much friction, so that CIO is usually thinking more about like, how much time is it going to take me in order to set up this data stack? Um, how many resources will I need to maintain that data stack? What is the ROI? Like, how can I justify to my CFO or my CEO that the ROI of spending, let's say, it's like three hundred thousand dollars a year on maintaining this data stack is worth it, right? Um, and that's actually like something that we love talking to users about because there's a lot of ROI there, but it's not always in the traditional way that they're used to seeing it. So a CIO is usually saying, all right, the ROI I have is that because of good analytics, we're going to be able to cut costs. Or because of good analytics, we're going to be able to spend money more wisely. And that's why the the data team usually reports up to the CFO. And then the CFO says, okay, great. Like, because of our analytics, we spent 200K less on marketing and 200K less on sales because we cut, like, the... We cut the fluff and we didn't have like we didn't we didn't spend money extraneous right so like that's usually the outcome um, and we're trying to like reword what that outcome is. We're trying to like change the script there and kind of encourage CIOs to think about, well what if instead the business outcome that you drove was an increase in top line rather than a cut of cost so instead it was things like my sales team is more productive because they know what the user is doing with the application even before they talk to the user. So instead of having to get on the call and ask the user, okay, what do you do with my app? Um, They know everything about that user already because that user data is in in their CRM. Or maybe my marketing team is getting a higher return on ad spend because the campaigns they're running are much more tuned for that customer. Maybe they're sending that customer a campaign that pulls up the color of the product that they've used, that they've looked at or that they've purchased. So every single customer gets a custom campaign with the right color that is more interesting to them, right? And that encourages them to buy more often and that's all automated using data. So those are the kinds of things that we want CIOs to think about, that data can actually be used to increase top line rather than analyze things after the fact and then make decisions that, like, usually do something that cut cost. Um, and that's really what CIOs get excited about these days, which is that, like, we can actually be a revenue-driving team because our data and our data sinks power revenue and revenue operations. So that's, I think, like, something that's worth digging into more at some point, but, like, those are the kinds of, like, People that are able to come in with a lot of excitement, a lot of budget, because they know that that data flow is not just going to provide analytics after the fact. It's actually going to provide analytics that power operations.
0: Yeah. Yeah. So you you, want to you want to basically see see companies that basically they're not thinking about it just as a warehouse, you know, just to tap into analytics. They want, you know, more of the operational use cases. Mm Um, as to what, what they could actually do with it instead of just, oh uh, I have this large amount of data mm-hmm. and so um, we we just wanna you know see what we could leverage that data for but you know you're trying to operationalize it. Uh and and more on a on a personal note, what are you reading these days? Any interesting books? Uh
1: yes, yeah, so I just finished um this book called Dune, which is a science fiction book.
0: What um, it, Dune?
1: I, yeah like D U N E.
0: I think there was a movie about it, too.
1: Yeah, yeah. They just released the movie, I think, a few months ago. So I haven't seen the movie yet, but the book was really good.
0: Yeah, was it on Um, Disney Plus? I think so. Yeah, it was pretty cool. I saw it, yeah.
1: Oh, yeah, okay. Uh, And then I'm uh, starting The Power of Habit now. Uh, A bunch of my friends have read Power of Habit, and they said really good things about it. And the reason they liked it is because they, it's like mostly case studies. Mm -hmm. So instead of talking about, like, how to like create habits for yourself and like be like, like a self-help book. It's much more about how other like bigger brands or like bigger institutions have created habits for society and case studies of how they accomplish that.
0: Yeah, I, I think I have it. I don't know if I've read it or not, but I probably have over a hundred self-help books. <laughs> so, <laughs> so, it's, um it's kind of, kind of a crazy world when you, when you're talking self-help books. Um Yeah. And also want one more question as well. Just uh if, if you, if you had an opportunity to, to kind of travel back in time, you know, step into mm-hmm. that Kashish spaceship, um, what would you say to your 16-year-old self if you had the knowledge you have now, mm. you traveled back to 16-year-old Kashish, what would you tell him?
1: That's a good question, huh? It's
0: a good one, isn't it?
1: <laughs> yeah, I think um, I would... There, there is something I learned like, in the last few years that I would tell my 16-year-old self, mm-hmm. which is um, don't plan so far ahead. So what people tend to do is they tend to map out, like, here's what I want to do in five years, or here's what I want to do in 10 years, and this is how I'm going to get there. Um, and the problem with doing that is actually you don't even know the possibilities of what you can accomplish. So when you're 16, you're in 10th grade, right? So as, as a 10th grader, you think, okay, I want to get into college, I want to get a good job, and then I want to like make a lot of money. Well, I want a girlfriend. And that's like, Yeah. Or I want a girlfriend. (laughs) Um, I want to like be really good at a sport, like whatever it is, right. This is like, those are like kind of like the span of what you think your goals are. Um, and you don't really know what else is out there because that's all you've been told. Um, my new framework is instead of planning things out so far ahead of time, like two years, five years, 10 years, um, think about things at like a six month or like 12 month cadence and just reevaluate them every six months. Um, because Six months from now, the opportunities that are in front of me, that are available to me, are going to be completely different than the ones today. Um, and then six months later, I might meet someone that exposes me to a whole new world of opportunities. For example, maybe I didn't know what cryptocurrency was or Web3 was um, a year ago. Now I do, and now the opportunities available to me are like much, much wider. Or maybe... three years ago, I didn't know what fintech was, or I didn't know what data engineering was, right? And so I wouldn't have even been able to think of the high-touch idea or think about, like, what it means to be, like, the founder of a Series B company at that point in my life. Um, At that point in my life, I was just trying to figure out, like, what do I want to do after college, right? So, like, that's the kind of stuff where people that plan too, too far ahead, um, they've already set their path. So they've already said, okay, I'm going to get promoted twice, then I'm going to become a manager, then I'm going to become, like, a manager of a different company. Um, and then it's very likely they're gonna accomplish that path with high certainty, but they don't know what other paths there could have been um, that were even even cooler, that they could have accomplished if they had like kind of left their doors open. So I think that's like the big one. And then the small like nuance to that is like, when you don't know what your path is, you like kind of go crazy and you think about it all the time. Like, oh shit, what am I doing? What am I doing? What am I doing? So my other that's why my other feedback to myself would be like, think about what we're gonna do for six months finalize that and then don't think about it again for 6 more months because you don't want to like reevaluate your life every single week or every single month you want to do it at like you want to like go strong in one path and then reevaluate and then go strong on your new path and then reevaluate and it's like very similar to like like a perspective mm-hmm. like me and my friends have on relationships like if you if you're dating someone you don't want to reevaluate that relationship every single day or every single week because <laughs> that's going to become really tedious for that's both you cool. and your partner right um, you want to reevaluate that relationship like maybe every six months or every like, few months, because that's really like the amount of time that it takes to develop like new opinions on like, is this the right relationship for me?
0: Mm. So, is this some of the things you, you've you been learning in that habit book?
1: No. Yeah. This is just happened to happen to happen in my life. No books. Got listen. it.
0: Got it. I, I've truly enjoyed this conversation. And um, just the, the, the last couple of questions and tapping into the, the personal side of, of Kashish. and. I think maybe we could do a whole episode just kind of off topic of, you know, reverse ETL and some of these these techie type of conversations. And I, I've been teetling with the idea of maybe doing a different podcast and yeah. having more human conversation instead of all of this techie talk. I love that. And just to wrap up, uh, is there any social media handle um, that you would like to provide for the Gumbo listeners that maybe they could follow a Twitter handle or maybe reach out on LinkedIn?
1: Yeah, that would be great. Um, my Twitter is Kashgupta underscore. So that's K-A-S-H Gupta. And join G-U-T-A, our um, Backup underscore.
0: and Recovery Professionals uh, LinkedIn, LinkedIn group. Is also Just a good place search Backup and Recovery Professionals and on LinkedIn and you will find we the group. And until really next like time, Gumball listeners, listeners but we have a fantastic week. We raised
1: almost like million now week. in the past year and a half. And we went from zero customers January of last year to about 110 paying customers now.
0: Congratulations.
1: And we went from employees last year at the beginning last year to now like 40 employees so wow everything that's again like everything that's happened is not what we could have predicted you know like when we started 2021 Mm -hmm. we didn't say hey we're going to grow to 40 employees and we're going to grow to two million dollars in revenue like we just didn't know that was going to happen yeah um and that just comes back to what i was saying on like you can't really plan what your year looks like you can just plan what the next few months look like
0: yeah that's awesome and did you want to maybe uh plug an open position that you have you looking for some some developers or some coders or someone yeah. in marketing or something
1: uh, so that would be great we're actually very very actively hiring across engineering marketing and sales okay um and so we have a lot of senior and junior backend positions open um, if anyone is a backend end engineer um, our stack is in node.js but we're super agnostic to language so it really doesn't matter what language you've written in the past we're very happy to start from really like the framework of like what is good architecture and then we you'll be able to learn the ropes of like node.js really quickly so language doesn't matter for us and then we have um a few different positions on marketing and sales open as well so best way to find out about those would be slash careers um for all of our open positions and we'd love to have you guys on board
0: all right and um you you can say that data protection gumbo sent you so I can um, make sure I get a finder's fee from Kashish. Um, Uh,
1: That would be great. We actually do have a finder's fee and we'd be very, very happy to do that. (laughs) I'm just uh, kidding. uh, We would love, no, actually we'd love that. Um, All right. It's a win-win for everyone.
0: Well, it's definitely been a pleasure, Kashish. And uh, thank you so much for taking time out to um, just, you know, share a little bit about yourself, about Hightouch.io and um, just to have this conversation overall. Yeah, thanks for having me, Demetrius. Had a great time as well. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Data Protection Gumbo. Please follow us on Twitter at DPG Podcast.